Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. This year's ASH 2020 meeting was held virtually. However, the breadth and quality of presentations remained as high as ever. Today, we are speaking to two leading experts in the lymphoma field who will discuss and debate the key data presented at ASH 2020, including updates on bispecific antibody therapies for the treatment of lymphoma, as well as developments in the treatment of CNS lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, T-cell lymphoma and Hodgkin lymphoma. Well, welcome everybody. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, my name is Stephen Ansel. I'm uh, from Mayo Clinic. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Graham Collins, who is from who is the lymphoma lead at, at Oxford University. And uh, we're really just uh, delighted to be here together talking a little bit about the lymphoma data, specifically for BJ Hemonk. And um, at the ASH meeting, Graham, I, I think all told, it was a different meeting to usual. I think we had to get used to watching things virtually and, uh, and responding, but there was some important data, and I thought uh, together we'll kind of chit-chat a little bit about that. And maybe we'll start, if it's good with you, uh, with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Just before we got started here, you were saying uh, biospecifics are coming of age, so I'll let you pick up right there and uh, tell us why you thought that. Yes, no, thanks, thanks, Steve, very much. Yes, it was a different ash. It was slightly unusual watching ash in slippers with a hot chocolate on the table, but um, it had its perks. <laughs> um, so, yes, I mean, bispecifics, well, there was a whole session on bispecifics, as you know, um, at this year's ash. And I think what really I think is becoming more clear now, which perhaps we didn't have clarity on before, is how these agents are optimally delivered, uh, particularly in terms of reducing CRS, cytokine release syndrome. Um, and also we're starting to see some durability data now as well and the responses and durability at decent doses, you know, because there's, there's quite understandably been uh, dose finding studies and it's quite hard to interpret the response races, rates when you're at low doses like that. And I was actually really struck, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, Steve, but I was really struck by the consistency in the response rates in diffuse large B. So, you know, uh, three out of the four presentations included patients with relapsed refractory diffuse large B and the complete response rates which i think is what we're most interested in were around 50 to 55 percent whether you were looking at the odronextamab whether you were looking at epcaritamab or glofitamab um we've also got to get used to these new names i think um right. so i was really struck by the consistency in cr rates and those cr rates did seem pretty durable i mean the follow-up is still relatively short and you know there are those caveats but um, you know, to have an over 50% response rate in a difficult to treat population was impressive. Now, a, a lot's also been made about responses post CAR T, and I think some of the data that were presented showed there was activity, but perhaps less good. I mean, not surprisingly, you know, the, the CR rates for some of the agents were down to about 20, 25% in that space. But I was struck by that, Steve. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think for me, it was very interesting, as you said, how consistent the data look. So to be honest, and I'd love to get your thoughts, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the design of these bispecifics and whether it's really good to have a smaller molecule versus a bigger molecule, multiple binding sites, whether you give it subcutaneous versus IV. Do you think any of that matters or do you think it's really just a class effect and we're going to get the same from all of them? Yeah, well, I think I think for the optimizing uh, or reducing, perhaps I should say, the side effects, in particular the cytokine release, there seemed to be a, a sort of general consensus emerging that subcutaneous may be the way forward. I mean, it's it's all again difficult to be adamant about that. 
Um, but there does seem to be sort of lower cytokine levels in patients that are given subcutaneous dosing. And also this whole concept of step-up dosing, particularly for the intravenous, so start at a low dose and gradually work up, does seem to ameliorate these, the, the more severe at least cytokine release syndromes. And I was, I was interested, there was a bit of, you know, it wasn't presented formally, but in the discussion there was some uh, perhaps thought that the glofitamab, although you're looking very active, might be associated with some excess toxicity. So maybe the two CD20 binding sites, who knows, but maybe that's adding to that toxicity. So I, I, you know, there's lots of hypotheses around, isn't there, but hard to be sure about these things. Right, but I do agree with you that I think the response rates look very comparable to CAR T cells, but how do you feel about the durability? Do you, you know, one of the things about CAR T cells is we think there may be a tail on that curve we're pretty excited that maybe there are a subset of patients that may be cured. Do you think we can start getting excited about uh, biospecifics and having a similar curve? Yeah, I think it's really difficult. I mean, Zuma One, I think, was presenting its four-year data at ASH, and, and it, uh, you know, it's pretty convincing that there is a plateau, quite a high plateau on the tail there. So, you know, if I've got a patient in clinic with relapsed refractory diffuse large B, do they go for a bispecific? Do they go for a CAR-T? I think if they're eligible, I would still be recommending a CAR-T simply because we have that longer follow-up. So, you know, it's really tantalizing the CR data and the um, early durability results. But, you know, I'm not convinced yet there's a plateau. There may well be, but time will tell. So how in your practice do you, as you say, do you decide that? You know, so, I mean, basically, are you still going CAR T cells are the thing and only if you fail that or if you can't get that or whatever, then buy specifics? Or are you starting to say, if you're in a hurry to get treating, we'll just jump in with buy specifics because I can give that to you today. Um, yeah. How do you manage them? Well, it's, well, yeah, yeah, it's a good question, Steve. I mean, you know, we ha have to say we have quite limited access to biospecifics uh, in the UK. It's purely in the context of a trial and often they're slot driven. And, you know, so it can be quite difficult to sort of just give it quickly to a patient. But you're right, Steve. I mean, you know, these patients who are progressing quickly, perhaps bulky disease at relapse, you know, these are the ones that we're getting more and more of a sense of that actually CAR-T may not be the optimal approach. However, you know, in the absence of those things, if you've got a standard patient, if that patient exists uh, with relapsed refractory diffuse large B, you know, we have access to CAR-T as long as the patient's eligible. Um, so I, I do, you know, that, that is what I would counsel the patient. You, you know, you often lay out the options, don't you, to the patient, and the patient often turns around and says to you, well, what would you do, you know? And, uh, you know, genuinely speaking in that, in that situation, we've got licensed products, CAR-T product with pretty good durability data now, plus, you know, obviously longer safety data, which is also you know, reasonably encouraging in the post-CAR-T space. So yes, it is that. I mean, if, you know, bispecifics are available, yeah, fantastic. I mean, to have an off-the-shelf product um, that would get that sort of CMR rate would be great. But again, I just need some reassurance about the durability, I think. Right. The other thing I was thinking about was just when one's talking about practice and how you actually manage things, there was some three or four presentations, publications on CNS lymphoma. And again, I don't know what your experience with CNS uh, involvement, um, secondary involvement and prophylaxis and how you manage that. But there was some sobering data to suggest that maybe we, we do things to treat ourselves rather than actually in a way that's beneficial to patients. So I, I don't know what your thoughts were from seeing some of that data. Yeah, so I love that data, Steve, because I think anything that challenges what we do is really welcome and stimulates such great debate, doesn't it? And you're right, yeah, two presentations, quite big numbers of patients 
you know, looking at the efficacy of single IV methotrexate. So, you know, most of them excluded patients also getting intrathecal. And lots of caveats, you know, it's retrospective. So some of the data that wasn't available, you know, was the IV given over three hours or 24 hours might be important. So, you know, lots of missing gaps. But, you know, the bottom line was there did not appear to be even a whiff of benefit for those given the IV. So that is challenging. Now, it's not to say that there might not be a significant benefit that's masked uh, in that data set. Um, but it's fascinating. And again, what, what was, I think, interesting in the discussion is I think people are falling into three camps. You know, they're, they're falling into the, the perhaps the nihilistic camp. Can I put it like that? You know, as in it's not working, let's stop. Um, and, you know, and IV methotrexate can cause problems. So there is a rationale for not, for not giving something that's um, not working and, um, and that may cause toxicity. But the, the other camp is, well, what we're doing isn't working. So we need to do more. You know, we need to give dual prophylaxis. We need to give novel agents. You know, who knows? Maybe a cycle of thiotipa containing chemo at the end of treatment. You know, so there's that camp. But there's also the camp, which I think I'd put myself in still, which is that this is intriguing. It's probably not enough to stop what we're doing because, you know, when you've got such a devastating complication as CNS relapse, it's very hard to withdraw a treatment that might even have just a small uh, chance at reducing their relapse rate. So, you know, we, we tend to recommend it in CNS IPI 4 plus and in high risk sites, testicular, kidney, adrenal, breast, ovary, that sort of thing. And I think we'll keep doing that. Certainly it'd be interesting to see the publications when they come out, but boy, oh boy, it'd be nice to have prospective data. Um, oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we really need uh, we need some prospective data. I'm I'm in your camp too. I mean, I tend to test CSF to be sure that it's not positive because obviously that changes everything. But in the people that are negative, it's only really for me the highest risk population are the ones that I use prophylaxis. The rest I basically explain the risks and say you know I think we'd be doing something to make ourselves feel good because we're doing something but I'm not personally convinced that in the lower risk patients, we actually make a difference. So um, I think that data was informative. The only problem was I wasn't sure how that changes my life and my practice just yet. Yeah. Yeah. No, quite. Yeah. And did you see the presentation, Steve, as well on the cell-free DNA in CSF? I thought that was quite intriguing. Um, Correct. I mean, and to be honest, that was like a hundred percent likelihood yeah. of, of showing things. So, I do see that as a potential tool in the future, particularly because it may be difficult to get parenchymal lesion tissue from parenchymal lesions. And if you could get that from CSF, that would actually be very helpful. So um, I'm watching that space with interest. Yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, moving us on to follicular. So again, we kind of had the themes of biospecifics and CAR T cells, and it's kind of like uh, version 2.0 when you get to follicular lymphoma. <laughs> but again, uh, some really interesting data with, uh, with CAR T cells in follicular. So I wonder what you thought about that information, particularly the AXA cell data. Yeah, well, and, and this is very welcome, Steve, I think, because, you know, follicular is interesting, isn't it? You know, it's most of the time fairly straightforward as a lymphoma doctor treating follicular lymphoma, but you get the odd case, which is really difficult. And, you know, BTK inhibitors, a bit underwhelming, really, in follicular. Um, venetoclax monotherapy, you know, not great in follicular. So, you know, whereas CLL has lots and lots of options in the sort of relapsed refractory space, I, you know, I find myself running out of options in these high-risk patients. You know, PI3 kinase inhibitors work okay, but we're all very familiar with the toxicities. Um, and we, you know, in Europe, we don't have PI3 kinase or um, uh, inhibitors licensed. So we, we, we struggle a bit. Uh, lenalidomide is sort of where it stops. So, so to have the, you know, CAR-T and bispecific data coming through and looking so encouraging. And, 
you know, CAR T seems to work pretty well in relapsed diffuse large B. It seems to work very well in relapsed refractory follicular. I think the, it's all going to be about picking the right patients, though, isn't it? And defining that high risk group uh, where you can use a product which, you know, has reasonable amount of toxicity. You know, a third of patients, roughly, with Axicella getting grade three, four neurotoxicity, maybe a bit less than that, but a substantial number. So, so to, to justify the expense and the toxicity, it's about picking the, the right patients, I think, but, but really encouraging high response rates and good looking durability. I think the thing that for me was very interesting is, <clears throat> are we going to see that tail on the curve? Yeah. Because if we end up seeing patients with follicular or low grade lymphomas that are cured with CAR T cells, I think that's going to be a total game changer because, yeah. you know, We've always been a little hesitant of allotransplants in these patients because of the long-term, you know, graft versus host disease and those sort of problems. But now if a CAR T cell with its attendant problems, and again, your selection comments are well taken, but if we suddenly now see that we actually have a subset of patients who are potentially cured, I think that may change how our algorithm for treating follicular lymphoma patients look. Yeah, no, I completely agree. But the, I guess the other question, though, is how long do you need to wait to find that plateau? Because, you know, the autograph data, you know, some people would say you've got to curate at 10 years. Others don't believe it. They would say it's going to keep going down with longer follow up. Is it the same with CAR-T? You know, are regulatory authorities going to buy the fact that there's a curate with these after, I don't know, four or five years follow up? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I do think, though, that we've done a little better job in more recent years to work out who the higher risk patients are. And those people, I think the endpoints come up a little sooner. So I think uh, we may well get some of those answers or at least some clarity uh, in shorter kind of order. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is, I, I was struck by, you know, the original Idelalisib trial that used this concept of double refractory alkylating agent CD20. And uh, obviously we've got other things now, POD24, et cetera, but I completely agree. Yeah. When you mentioned earlier venetoclax and abrutinib, I was kind of a curious, there was a regimen out of the NCI called Viper, kind of thought it was an interesting name. I'm not sure whether it's good or bad, you know, a name like that, but, um, um, but really bringing in venetoclax, bringing in uh, abrutinib, uh, steroids, rituximab, all into the um, initial therapy. Uh, any thoughts about, about that combination? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a bit like opening the dictionary of novel agents, wasn't it? And <laughs> picking them together, your, right? Putting, putting them together. So, yeah, I mean, a, a, a interesting combination, active combination, uh, time limited as well, which, you know, is, I, I think, probably beneficial in this sort of space. I mean, again, I was struck in the, in the questions when somebody, one of the first questions I think was on cost, and the presenter actually had an answer, you know, so, so I think he was clearly ready for that. Uh, question and argued that it was actually significantly less than potentially one dose of CAR T, which is, I'm sure, right. But uh, yeah, uh, you know, in, I'm personally still a big fan of good old immunochemotherapy in the frontline space, and I think it's going to take quite a lot to uh, to push that out. So uh, yeah, great to do it. Great to see the activity of that combination, but um, I'm not sure it'll affect my practice for some time to come. Right, right. Um, I thought also, as, as we're thinking now, maybe a little bit about T-cell lymphomas. There was some interesting data. Again, disappointingly, a lot of the interesting data in T-cell lymphoma was negative data. But uh, a big randomized study on Romadeps and CHOP, Romy-CHOP, if you like. Um, Want to give us your thoughts about that? 
Yeah, and you know, hats off to the French, the Lisa group for doing that study. Over four hundred patients randomised. And I think one of the one of the main take home messages there is we can, you know, we can do randomised studies on T cell lymphoma, and isn't it great, you know, to see one of those uh, randomised studies coming coming through and being published? But of course, disappointing, and the, the curves were tantalising because you know if you follow the survival curves for quite a while, almost a year or so, maybe even two years, that the, the row chop looks like it's doing better, that, but oh, you know, as you get to the right, it, it, it comes back down and there's really no significant difference. I mean, I was interested in the subgroup analysis. Obviously, you know, subgroup analysis is always, um, you've always got to take with a slight pinch of salt, but it nearly, you know, the andromenoblastic group nearly made it to statistical significance and of course you know there is this emerging data that um, the TFH group of T-cell lymphomas with their unique mutational profile may be more susceptible to HDAC inhibitor therapy so you know hypothesis generating but but does this mean you know having said we can deliver randomized trials in T-cell lymphoma does this now mean we've got to deliver you know, randomized trials in TFH lymphoma, boy, you know, if T-cell lymphoma is hard, then splitting a rare disease into an even rarer disease will be even harder to do trials for. So disappointing, sure, but um, but intriguing, particularly with that subgroup analysis, I think. Yeah, and I must say, I think your points are important related to the subgroup analysis, because I think, you know, if I look at where we have made progress, it's been with brintuximab, adotin plus CHOP, but that was a subgroup right off the bat, yeah. And I, I do think much though, it's great to see these trials. It still does make it a little challenging because it's such a gamish of people put together. We may need to, proving that we can do this kind of study, maybe we could go a little longer and a little bigger and get it more focused because it might've been that that subset of patients could have benefited. But I guess the challenge is no one's going to go back and do the study again. So uh, <laughs> we'll, you know, we'll wait and see. There was also some data to say that you could put azacitidine with CHOP. That was a small study, so I think it was more just a, you can do this, not so much that it's clearly, you know, you're going to need a randomized study to show that. But what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, and they were enriching. I, I, I agree, it was only about 20 patients, wasn't it? But most of them had TFH-derived lymphoma, right. and I think that's where the interest is, isn't it, with these agents, you know, the, the data we've got so far, which is, is um, monotherapy and relapsed patients mostly, is very interesting. You know, some really quite um, high response rates, albeit in these small number of patients in the relapse setting. So to combine this in the frontline setting with CHOP, uh, which of course the other thing the ROCHOP study did is, is again confirmed that the you know cure rate or the long-term remission rate with CHOP is about 30%. Now I think we knew that anyway, but it, it sort of confirmed it. So you know there is a minority that do well with CHOP. So to combine something like uh, oral azacitidine in that targeted group of TFH derived, I think has a lot of um, rationale behind it. Um, so it was reassuring that it can be delivered safely. Yeah. Speaking of transplant, it made me think for a minute, what do you do in your practice? You know, are you one of those who consider transplanting autologous or allo in first remission? There was some data around allogeneic. It was sort of a big registry study. And, you know, again, when you, if you can get to a transplant, you can get into the registry because you're at an academic center, the numbers look better. But um, I wondered if those kinds of data impact what you do in your practice. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's a f fraught with controversy, isn't it? What you do with transplants in first remission, particularly. I mean, we do autograft. I do it slightly guiltily because 
again, when I've got a patient in front of me and I'm consenting them, you know, obviously I want to tell them what the benefit is and I, <laughs> I, I don't quite know what to say. You know? And often, I, you know, I, I am honest with them and say that the evidence behind this is thin, but we believe that some of the better results that are seen in the frontline setting are including a stem cell transplant. And generally speaking, you know, we include an autologous. There was that data, you know, the Germans produced of randomizing autologous and allogeneic in the frontline setting, very brave study. Uh, the outcomes were the same, but, you know, many patients didn't actually make it to their assigned transplant. So it was a very hard study to do. The allogeneic data that you mentioned, yeah, that was interesting. The retrospective study, big numbers, you know, hundreds of patients, um, and, you know, my take on that was the five-year PFS looked like it, it was about the 40% mark, which to be honest is what I normally quote with an autologous transplant in first remission, although these weren't all first remission patients, obviously, so they would have had some higher risk than that. The, the, the group that really made me look hard at, though, I think it was only 34, 35 patients, but with hepatosplenic T-cell right. lymphomas where, you know, it was almost 50%, I think, were, were progression-free at five years, which that is a hard group of patients. So, uh, you know, I think that's confirmed our, our desperate attempt to try and get these patients to allograft if we can, even in first remission. Yeah, I must say, I think that was information that I found useful. Because I think for me, for T-cell lymphomas, I kind of put them in three buckets. The, the really good ones that could benefit from CHOP BV or, or CHOP or BV chip, and then they're the not so good ones, but if you could do an autologous transplant, that may be beneficial. And then there's the really bad ones. And those, if I can get them in remission, allotransplant is what comes to mind. So I thought those data were very helpful to help define a little bit the third of those three categories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely so, agree. So you mentioned earlier about how we desperately need new drugs. And, uh, you know, um, Duvalisib had some data. And I know they've kind of, putzed around with trying to get the right dose. And, uh, you know, the study was kind of giving that information. Um, what, what, what's your thinking about Duvalisib? Do you see this as a future tool that we're going to see a lot more of in T-cell lymphoma? Or, um, you know, is this something that's sort of just okay information and we'll leave it at that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've, I've always been slightly surprised by the Duvalisib data. It's been quite good, really. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know, when Idelalisib first came around, a number of people suggested trying it in T-cell lymphoma, but the manufacturers were very down on that and said that in the lab, there's no good rationale of treating T-cell lymphoma with PI3 kinase. But actually there is, you know, uh, PI3 kinase is an important enzyme in um, T cells as well as in B cells. Um, so perhaps it's not that surprising that they are, that, you know, we are seeing with the jubilistic data around 50% sort of response rates, which in relapse T cell lymphoma is good. I guess the caution is, you know, there's a number of uh, agents we've seen reasonable phase two data on, which when you take to, you know, larger phase three studies have failed to, to show improvement. So I, I think, you know, I, yes, absolutely. I think it's a green light to develop this drug further. And I think we will see it develop further. Uh, but I'm st I'm st I'm open-minded. I think as to where we'll be in five years' time with it, though. I think I, I agree with you. I think it looks it's a promising drug. I, the results were qu quite good and very encouraging. My my test is always: Do you think you can combine it with other things? Because one of the challenges I think in T cell lymphoma, there really isn't a one drug going to fix the problem. It's always going to be a combination approach. So does it play well with other agents? And is always my question in my head when I'm thinking about longevity. And I think there are going to be a few challenges uh, with, with Duvalisib, just with blood counts and, and other issues. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, sure you're right, Steve. Yeah. 
So moving on into our final uh, segment, if you like, is something that you and I have uh, done a lot together on, and that's uh, Hodgkin lymphoma. So um, right in the beginning, jumping right off with the antibody drug conjugate, the CD25 ADC uh, CAMI T, you've kind of pioneered this particular agent in Hodgkin lymphoma. There was more of this data available. What's your, th your take on, is this gonna be a tool we're gonna see used all the time? Uh, or, or not? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating drug, I think, and a, and a real dilemma in terms of drug development because it's really active, you know. So as you say, phase two study now where um, the starting dose is given for two cycles and then dropped to a lower dose to try and circumvent some of the toxicities that were seen in the phase one. And, you know, the response rates in the phase two are looking very high, you know, over 80% in a group of patients where all bar one patient had had prior BEV and a PD-1 inhibitor, and that one patient was a protocol deviation, you know, so they should all really be getting that. Median, I think, of five prior lines, so, you know, a truly heavily pretreated group. So response rate of 83%, amazing. You know, CR rate uh, was over 40%, really good. Um, but boy, it's the toxicities, you know, so I, I, I class them into two, really. One is the sort of PB, PBD, pyrola benzodiazepine uh, associated toxicities. That's the, the payload um, uh, on the antibody drug conjugate. And these can be really problematic, you know, grade three rash, um, uh, effusions, um, you know, which can really impair patients' quality of life, actually. It can be quite hard to manage, particularly the rash. You know, it's not a simple matter of delaying the drug and giving some steroids, it, it can persist. Uh, liver function test abnormalities as well. Um, but perhaps the thing that worries us, most of us is the rate of Guillain-Barre or polyradiculopathy that's seen. Now, the, the study was actually paused, the phase two study, at 50 patients because they had the protocol defined uh, stopping criteria that once they saw two or more uh, cases of polyradiculopathy, there would be a pause uh, while the data was looked at and regulatory authorities had a good going over of it. And they have done that and it has reopened again. But again, you know, we are seeing these uh, polyradiculopathies, which I understand, thankfully, none of them were my patients in this trial. Um, I understand that they have been reversible, which is encouraging, but it's a very difficult um, and scary, um, you know, side effect to deal with. And, but fascinatingly, you know, a lot of patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma and other tumors have been treated with this agent, but it's only the Hodgkin lymphoma patients that have seen uh, this side effect. So there is something about Hodgkin lymphoma patients. I guess we know, don't we, that you do see um, autoimmunity in, in rare patients with Hodgkin's, but there seems to be some way in which that's diverted towards the uh, neuroaxis uh, in some of these patients. So yeah, active, but toxic. And again, going back to your combination uh, comment, Steve, can you combine this drug? I think it's a real challenge. Right. <clears throat> Have you seen much in the way of immunological effects uh, with this agent or... Uh... You know, you're obviously taking away T-reg cells, so you're unleashing the immune system or maybe just depleting it. Um, yeah. Any problems that you've noticed when you've been treating patients, particularly in the phase one when you did that? Yeah, we did see some of what you might expect to be sort of PD-1 inhibitor toxicities, so thyroid disturbance, particularly hypothyroidism, and also pneumonitis. Uh, you know, there was a case of that reported in the phase two, but we also had a case of that in the phase one. Not particularly frequent, um, but, but definitely there. So I, I think you are seeing these other uh, immune-related uh, toxicities. Well, speaking of immune-related effects, um, there was obviously other data which was uh, in the post-transplant kind of consolidation space, similar to what brintuximab vidotin tested in the uh, Athera study. Now it was brintuximab vidotin plus nivolumab. 
uh, in that 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 space. Um, that was interesting because uh, there's been some data on pembrolizumab, if I remember correctly, in that space uh, as a kind of a consolidation. And all of those results look quite uh, interesting and promising. So your thoughts on where are we going in the post-transplant space? Are we going to put all our, our drugs in that space or have we used them up more typically before we get to transplant or should we really not do that and keep them so we can use them later if people relapse? What are you doing in your in your in your practice? Yeah, so well, I mean, it was a very interesting study. So combining nivolumab with brentuximab, as you say, post autologous transplant in the high risk setting. So overlapping with the Athera trial criteria, but I think they also included patients who'd taken more than uh, one line of salvage and PET positive as well at transplant. So a little bit extra in terms of eligibility. And what was good, I think, about it is it was shorter treatment. I think they were using eight cycles rather than the, you know, up to 16 that Athera used. Um, and yeah, it was very, you know, very high PFS rates seen so far, although, you know, obviously follow-up is relatively limited. Um, I, I was slightly surprised by the toxicity in that there was quite a high use of steroids um, in the patients. You know, I think it was around almost heading up for 20%, which seemed, you know, quite a lot really. Um, and more than you would expect, perhaps, if you use um, Nevo as single agent in that setting. So a little bit worried about that. Um, now, what we do, you know, what what we do in the in the UK again, we're rather restricted by what we've got available. Um, we don't even have a Thera Brentuximab consolidation funded, which I think is a real shame because um, you know I think if you can avoid an allograft, and we still do allograft patients with multiply relapsed Hodgkins uh, in uh, in England at least, um, I think if you can avoid that with consolidation post autograft, then all the better. I think what we're seeing though, Steve, and I'll be interested to see if you agree on this, is we're seeing a shift though towards actually identifying the lower risk patients and replacing the autograft. Uh, you know, it's been the long held mantra, hasn't it, of, you know, relapsed refractory Hodgkins, you want to get them to autograft. Um, but of course, the evidence base for that is quite thin. Two old studies, none, neither of which showed overall survival advantage. Um, and we've got much more active um, agents nowadays. Plus, you know, the pediatricians for a long time have been taking their low and intermediate risk patients and not autografting them at relapse and, and have very interesting results. So I do wonder if, uh, you know, PD-1, maybe plus BV as well, will be used more in the future of actually challenging that uh, autograft in the first place rather than throwing everything at consolidation afterwards. Yeah, I think you did right. And I think that's begging for a randomized comparison to actually prove that because I think you're right with new drugs available and higher response rates and potentially better ways in treating people. Um, that may be, you know, kind of a more toxic agent combination that causes problems in the long term and we may not need to do that. But uh, I'm like you, I, I'm data driven. So want to see the study to show that if, if we possibly can. Yeah, and, and what was your thoughts on the Pembro GVD data as well, Steve, which was first relapse, wasn't it? Showing, you know, a 95% CR rate or something. I mean, again, small numbers, non-randomized, but what, what's your practice for first-line uh, salvage in Hodgkins? Yep, so that I thought was really interesting because that was a really high response rate. And, uh, you know, we tend, because we're often using um, new agents in the front line outside of a clinical trial, we would typically use standard GVD or standard ice chemotherapy and then go to transplant and then bring the novel agents in on the back of transplant. So I thought that data was, uh, was quite compelling and intriguing, but I think again, um, often you can get good results because you select patients well 
And we, because these small studies are exactly that small, I think we just need to wait for more information and potentially compare comparative studies. But it certainly was an intriguing uh, result. And, you know, there's some data from Josh Brody's group um, where they've done this immunotransplant, where doing something before you actually give a heavy dose of chemotherapy may actually change the environment and get better results later. So to be frank, I think that's another space which hasn't really been explored much and uh, certainly would be interesting to see what that showed as we kind of get more data. Mm, fascinating. Yeah. Well, you know, we've kind of gone through a bit of a whirlwind here uh, of, of different topics. Anything you wanted to bring up that we might have missed or something that we should uh, chat about uh, because it was, it was big news at ASH? I think we've just about covered it, Steve. <laughs> I guess it was, it was the plenary session on large cell lymphoma, more of a yeah. basic kind of approach. Um, but I think, again, really reminding us is that we're understanding some of those large cell networks and BCL10's role in all of it. So I'm, I'm always excited when lymphoma makes it to the plenary session because I think uh, that elevates the importance of what you and I do. But yes, uh, wasn't really ready for clinical prime time, I think, at this point. There was some suggestion that maybe it can impact who would benefit from a brutinib, but as you and I said, a brutinib's not got quite its, its spot, if you like, in mm -hmm. those diseases. This was large cells, so I'm not sure if we know exactly how to utilize that, that information just yet. Yeah, and I thought I thought it was um, it underlines the fact that precision medicine is so fraught with difficulty, isn't it? Because, you know, you can define the uh, pathway, uh, you know, of tonic signaling from the BCR receptor, target it, find it doesn't work, and then you or not, you know, in the majority of patients, and then you find a new mutation you weren't expecting that explains that. And of course, my older, you know, PhD supervisor used to describe these intracellular signaling networks as pond life. You know, everything. Uh, you'd have your lily pads on the surface and then everything sort of coming down underneath it, lots of overlapping, interacting circuitry. And it's so hard to tease that apart. So uh, I agree with you, great effort and result to find that um, uh, explanation there. But it's, uh, you know, whether this is going to be a, a really good approach for treating that small subset of patients, uh, I think is yet to be seen. You know, I think it's a little bit like the London Underground. You know, if you're new to London, it's very confusing. But once you know how to read the map, you know, you can get where you need to go. So my hope is that as we unravel the map, if you like, we'll get closer and closer to uh, the truth and how to navigate it all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Delightful to chat with you today, Graham. Thank you very much for your time. Again, thank you to all of those who listened in and to our uh, VJ Hemonk uh, session on lymphoma and a report back on the ASH meeting. So thank you for your time and attention. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk to share your thoughts on the topics discussed with us. Visit VJHemonk.com for more key updates from our leading experts, as well as exclusive coverage of the hottest updates in lymphoma. Be sure to subscribe to VJHemonk podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean.